Amen. Turn with me back in your Bible to Ezra chapter 8. And let me pray for us again. Lord, it is true that you are seated on a throne. God, I pray that we would adore you in our heart, in our life, that we would be true Christians outwardly and inwardly, that where there are vestiges of hypocrisy, that you would help us to fight it, to see it. Where we have blind spots, help us to see them and to hate them and repent of them. And God, I pray that we could be whole Christians, uh, that we would be truly those who follow you, worship you, and desire to serve you and to trust you. And I pray even now, God, as we look at this text, that you would use it to shape our lives this week and for the rest of our lives, that you would teach us great truths about yourselves and about, about yourself and about us. Help us, God, to be humble before your word and to be shaped by it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you will direct your attention to the screen, um, we have been talking about the return from exile in the book of Ezra. It also follows in the book of Nehemiah. And for the first uh, six chapters of the book of Ezra, we had the return with Zerubbabel, which started in 538 B.C., most of Ezra 1 through 6, most of it is covering about 22 years, although for those who really remember, Ezra chapter 4, remember, jumps into the future. So technically, Ezra 1 through 6 covers a century of time, which is pretty amazing. Ezra 7 through 10, the last chapters of Ezra that we're moving into, which really fall into two sections, 7 and 8 is last week's text and today's text, which is the return home with Ezra and about 5,000 of the exiled Jews. And then chapters 9 and 10, which is going to be Ezra dealing with some pretty shameful sin amongst the people and trying to lead the people to repentance. These last four chapters only take place in a single year. Isn't that amazing how it's structured? The first six chapters is 100 years is covered in total. The last four chapters, we're just covering one year. And yet, uh, there is so much for us to learn. So we are now at the stage here in 458 BC when Ezra is returning with the people from Babylon. And although we don't plan to get to it anytime soon... Uh, in the book of Nehemiah, he has a return just a few years after Ezra in the year 445 B.C. Our text today, which I read at the beginning of the service, uh, the people of God are gathered, and we, we, no one knows for sure the exact place, a Hava. It was probably a canal connected to one of the major uh, rivers, uh, either the Tigris or the Euphrates River. And so the people are somewhere inside that square, somewhere right around that spot, and that is where they spend about 12 days preparing to head on their journey. And then they are going to travel along this uh, line back to Jerusalem here. And so it's about a 900-mile trek and they don't have a car. I don't know about you, that's discouraging right there. I'm, it's, driving 900 miles in a car is enough for me. I'm, I'm about done after that. But imagine walking. This takes four months of time. Uh, scholars think that this happened May, June, July, August or so. So these are some hot months, and they're in a desert region. Can you imagine how hot the temperature? I mean, we're talking, if you've been to Judea, Jerusalem in, the, in these months, the temperature can get well over 100 degrees, and you want to look for shade. And so uh, they didn't go straight through the Arabian desert. You can understand why they went up and around to stay near some rivers and some things like that. But um, it's about a 900-mile uh, trek, and it takes them about four months they're traveling with adults, mothers, fathers, children, uh, a whole bunch of people, about 5,000 people-ish are with them, and uh, that is, that is uh, the journey that they're going to be on. I'm going to give you a quick summary of the sermon, then I'll give you our outline, and then we will start working through it. Uh, the summary is, is this. 
God provides for, his, for all his people's needs through the wise, humble, and careful planning of Ezra. God provides for all his people's needs through the wise, humble, and careful planning of Ezra. So let us learn to work hard and wisely as we entrust ourselves to God. Let us learn from Ezra and from this story that we should work hard and wisely as we entrust ourselves and our futures to God. The three points uh, are these. Number one, Ezra reviews the returning people. This is verses 1 to 20. Ezra reviews the returning people, and he finds no Levites. We'll talk about that. Verses 21 to 23, Ezra fasts and prays to God and finds protection. Verses 24 to to 36, Ezra entrusts the offerings to the priests and finds them faithful. I know that's a lot. I'll just give it to you one more time. Ezra reviews the returning people and finds no priests, point one. Point two, Ezra fasts and prays to God and finds protection. And number three, Ezra entrusts the offerings to the priests and finds them faithful. And I'm going to go ahead and begin here with a quick mention. If you remember last, if you look at chapter seven, just for a moment, you can flip back to chapter seven on your sheet there, in your text there, chapter seven, and look with me down here. It says, verse, uh, verse eight, and Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, this is the year 458 BC, verse 9, for on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, that's exactly four months later, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. Okay, now do you see how last week we saw a quick summary of their trip? That's very brief, we get almost no details, right? Chapter 8, this is going to help you conceptualize what's happening. Last week, they covered the trip in two verses, very briefly, they said it took four months. Chapter 8 is going to zoom in on the trip and spend the whole chapter on that trip. Okay, so what we passed over briefly in chapter 7, the four-month trip, that's what chapter 8 is all about. So we're going to zoom in on that trip for all of chapter 8. In fact, most of chapter 8 is simply the preparation for the trip. It's the first 12 days of that journey where they waited uh, near the canal, and they waited to make sure they had everything, and then they set off traveling that four-month trip back to Jerusalem. So point number one, Ezra reviews the returning people. This is verses 1 to 20. He reviews the returning people and finds no Levites. I'm not going to reread all of these verses, but I do want to mention a few things about these opening verses and all these names, verses 1 to 14. Now, it does take a second to realize what you're looking at as you stare at this list. Here are a couple of things that we, that we learn. Let's look at the beginning of the list, verse, verse 2. Verse 2 is separated from the rest of the list. I did not realize this at first. It took me a while after studying and reading some commentary to see what was happening here. But verse 2, it mentions three families here. Of the sons of Phineas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Uh, Phineas and Ithamar are both priestly families. And Hattush is from the kingly line of David. So just... This is, this is a detail that we just need to have in our head. You remember the tribe of Levi is where all the Levites came from. Well, that's, that's obvious, okay? <laughs> the Levites. They, they come from the tribe of Levi. But within the tribe of Levi, there's a subset, a smaller group that comes descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother, and those are the priests. 
Okay, so every Levite was a priest, but not, wait, every, no, I got that wrong. <laughs> every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. The, the, the Levites was a larger group. In, the, in, that, in that group, Aaron's descendants are the priests. And so here you have two priestly fam, fam, uh, families. You have Phineas, who is Aaron's grandson, and you have Ithamar, who is Aaron's direct son, and their descendants are the ones that, that are coming back. And then you have a kingly line, David's great-great-great-great-grandson, Hattush, and he is actually the great-grandson of Zerubbabel. Remember Zerubbabel from just a few weeks ago? I hate to break it to you. Get out your handkerchief. Zerubbabel has gone to heaven. Okay, he, he's gone. He, he, he's, he's already gone to heaven, but now his great-grandchildren are on the scene, and Hattush is one of those great-grandchildren. And people will say, you know, where is Jesus in the book of Ezra? Which I think we've seen a lot of what we see of Jesus in this book already, but right there, if you want to know where, where is Jesus in this chapter, you just circle Hattush, that, that guy right there. This is the line of David. And where is Jesus going to come from? He's going to come from the line of David. In Matthew 1, he's a descendant of Zerubbabel, right? Jesus is. And so the line of the Messiah is being preserved for us right here. And Ezra, or the author of Ezra, is putting these three families at the front of the order because you have two priestly families and one kingly family, the line of the Messiah. And he puts them separated from the group. And then he's going to give you separate families from verses 3 through 14. And all these families, ironically, if you look through, and I had to highlight these, and when I first did it, I missed some families. I'm just, it's amazing what, it's amazing what you don't see the first time you read something. It's, un, it's unbelievable. Just a footnote for everybody. If you say, hey, uh, I think, Jerry, you had a student one time who said, uh, or you had a friend one time who said, you, he, I've already read James, is what he said. I don't need to read James again. I've already read James, the book of James. And Ms. Jerry laughed because, you know, you can read James a thousand times and be finding new uh, insights from God's Word. We never exhaust God's Word. But never, ever think because, oh, I've read that book a couple of times or a handful of times. I know what's there. No, you don't. Neither do I. Uh, every time we go back to the Bible, even a chapter as remote as Ezra 8, I mean, this is as remote in the Bible as you can find. A list of names and some traveling records. You're like, what in the world? And yet, as I read this text, I learned some amazing things about God and about His people. And so, don't ever sell God's Word short. I don't want to go... This is a side point here. I don't have time, but... Um, we should not even joke like there are parts of the Bible that don't matter. I mean, I, I heard a man not from our church who asked me what I was preaching on. This is months ago. I said Ezra, and he said, oh man, oh boy, like why are you putting your people through that? I thought, I don't think that's the way we should react. I get what you're saying, but it's all, God, it's all God inspired. It's all God's word. The problem is not that the Bible is boring. It's that we are blind. I'm blind. That's the problem. If I'm in God's Word and I'm finding it irrelevant and uninteresting, the problem has got to either be with God's Word or me. You can pick who might be the problem. It's me. Okay? So let's just know, it's not God's Word that's the problem. God's Word is rich and has riches for us no matter where we are in the text. So the first three families, we understand priestly and kingly. Verses 3 to 14, if you look at the heads of the families, which I highlighted just so I could see them, uh, you have 12 family groups that are mentioned, which I don't think is an accident. There's 12 tribes and there's 12 groups. This may be symbolic for all of God's people in some sense, but you have 12 groups here. Just to name some of them, you have sons of Shechaniah, sons of Pehoth, Moab, sons of Zatu, sons of Aden, sons of Elam, etc. And you have groups that go with each family as you work through those texts. Now, here's what's interesting about this. I did not see this for a while looking at this passage. Those 12, the majority, the vast majority of the people returning from exile, of this 5,000 or so people, if you count women and children and about how many that were there, these are not priestly families, and they're not Levites, and they're not of the kingly family. You know who these are? These are the ordinary people of God like you and me. 
That's the majority. And you know how that's encouraging? How does God work in this world? He normally works through who? Us no-name Christians. Isn't that true? God works through his ordinary people. And Paul is jealous to say in 1 Corinthians 12, don't ever say that I'm an insignificant part of the body of Christ. Don't say that. Your name is written in heaven. We might get bored reading these lists of names. I will tell you, on the final day, when Jesus gets out the Lamb's book of life and reads and your name appears on that book, you will not be bored or uninterested. When he says your name and says, you are part of my book, the Father says, my Lamb was sent to secure the salvation of all the names in the book of life that were written before the foundation of the world, and your name, Christian, is in that book, you will not be bored. You will be astonished. In Luke 10, when the disciples are sent out on a mission... And they have authority over demons. Can you imagine this? One day you're a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee catching some fish. Before you know it, the Messiah has shown up and has sent you on a mission as a disciple. And he gives you power over the demonic, over the satanic realm. And you go out and you cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And you're doing mighty works and miracles day after day after day. Can you imagine how thrilling this would be? And they go back to see Jesus. And they say, Lord... Even the demons were subjected to us in your name. What does Jesus say? Do not rejoice that the spirits are subjected to you. But I'll tell you what to rejoice in. That your names are written in heaven. That is astonishing. Jesus said, what's better? To have authority over the demonic and to be publicly displaying your power by God's spirit over the demonic. What's better? Or to have your name written in the book of life. In heaven. Jesus says, don't ever misplace your joy. It is so easy to think my joy should be connected to my great list of accomplishments. And when my great list of accomplishments doesn't look so great, where's my joy going to go? It's going to go down. Don't let your joy ride on your ministry success or your job success or whatever. No, rejoice that your names are written somewhere, just like this list of names. God has not forgotten you, Christian. Your name is written in the book of life, and let that be where our joy is. So let's see here. What happens as Ezra reviews the people? Verse 15. Ezra is a careful planner. Verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Now that, that's an amazing verse right there. He got there and he found none of the sons of Levi. That's really amazing because look back at chapter 7. Remember King Artaxerxes, the Persian pagan king, had written a letter to Ezra? Remember that really amazing letter of encouragement? And look what Artaxerxes said. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 of Ezra 7. Ezra 7, 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, okay, he was not right about that part, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace, and now I make a decree that who can go home? Anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. You see that? Did the Levites get explicitly told, you can, any of you, all of you, if you want to go back and help with the temple, you can go. I mean, explicitly, the pagan king says, all priests, all Levites, anybody can go home. And you would think the people would be chomping at the bit. Finally, 
I get permission to go back home and help rebuild the people of God and the city of God and the temple of God. And if you're a Levite, you have a special privileged position. You think the Levites would be first in line along with the priests to want to go home. Well, look back at chapter 8. He gathers the people together, middle of verse 15. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there how many Levites? None of the sons of Levi. Now, that's strange, isn't it? The answer is not because there weren't any Levites in exile. People speculate there were several million Israelites in exile. Do you think there were some Levites in the three million people? I guarantee you there were lots of Levites. But there's zero in this returning crowd of about four or 5,000 people. What's, what's going on here? Well, if you know about how this works, the priests had a more privileged position in the work in the temple, right? Because remember, the priests were a smaller group out of the larger group of Levi, the Levites. The Levites would assist the priests. And here's what that means. The Levites had a more menial task in front of them than the priests did. The priest task was more of a spotlight task. The task of the Levites was more forgettable, you might say, more menial, easier to dismiss in some ways. And here's the guess that most people uh, think is what's happening here. One, one writer says it like this, quote, perhaps the Levites had not responded to the call to return because the chance to settle uh, and own property in Babylon, Babylon proved more attractive than a long hazardous journey followed by the strict routines of temple service. See, the Levites thought, probably, seemed like they were doing pretty well in exile economically. They were doing okay. They had lived there their entire lives. I mean, this, so many years have passed now, uh, virtually zero people, maybe no one is left alive at this point. So they've been born in exile in Babylon. They were raised there. Guess what? They've built houses there. They've worked there. They've got jobs there. And they're thinking, oh boy, if I give up my economic security... I'm going to have to give up my physical home. Probably not going to get any money here. I'm just going to give it up. I've got to return 900 miles in the summer in intense heat, risking my life because bandits could attack us because we're carrying gold and silver vessels with us that weigh, by the way, tons. They're carrying tons, like 20-something tons of silver and over a ton of gold, literally. Uh, There's just an unbelievable amount of wealth. And so they could be attacked and killed. Then they get back home. They're going to have nothing. They're going to be starting from scratch, practically. And they're going to have a not very glorious job assisting the priests in the temple. I think that was the argument for why no Levites are showing up. But Ezra knows this is a serious problem. And I can't help thinking of a verse that we probably, most of us know this verse. It's Psalm 8410. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a what? Doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And it sounds like at this point, almost, well, it sounds like all the Levites preferred to dwell in Babylon than to be a doorkeeper in God's house. And just as a point of application, back to my main point from a few minutes ago, I know I say this periodically, but I'm going to say it again. There are no insignificant members of this church. There there is no one who's a member of this church who has nothing to contribute to this church, whose gifts will not benefit this church, whose personal integrity and godliness will not be an encouragement to other members of this church. Even something as simple as just faithful attendance at our church and the encouragement of seeing faces and smiling and talking and catching up, do not think that these things are insignificant. 
that they don't matter. You know this. Doesn't God sometimes work through very small conversations to accomplish big things in our lives? How many of you could point back to a seemingly insignificant conversation that led to big changes and encouragement in your life? Can you think back and see those moments? How many times have you been personally encouraged in your walk with the Lord by interactions with other people in this room? I said this already. I'm going to say it again because it was true, so true. There was one particular Thursday. I don't know if it was a Thursday. One of the days we met this summer. Sometimes it was Friday. Sometimes it was, I think it was a Thursday night. There was one particular night this summer where, if I'm being honest, inside I was discouraged that night and I did not feel like teaching. I didn't want to, I wanted, I just, you have those days, right? And I mentioned this to you all previously, but I came that Thursday night and I kid you not, I stayed after, we talked, I talked to so many of you. I left that night and I came home thrilled, excited, encouraged, and it changed my next week. Changed my next week. And that's because of you. So don't tell me that we are not here to serve and love each other and that these things don't matter. Every single member of the body of Christ matters. It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. So how does Ezra solve this problem? Well, he summons some leaders and some wise men. Look at verse 16. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men. So he calls on nine uh, leaders and two other kinds of people, Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight. So he calls on nine men who were strong leaders, and he calls on two men who were scholars or wise men or men of insight. And what he does is he gets these groups, strong leaders and people who are very wise and knowledgeable. He brings them together and says, listen, I need your help. I need you to go talk to some of these Levites and encourage them to come with us. We need Levites for the temple. Please go speak with them. Now let's see what happens. Verse 17. And he sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place Cassiphiah, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Cassiphiah, namely to send us ministers for the house of of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18, and it lists others as well. Now here, this goes back to one of our points today is this. Is Ezra relying on and trusting in God's good hand of providence? Yes. By the good hand of our God, they brought us the man we needed. Does that mean Ezra does not carefully and wisely plan and work hard to bring about the right people coming? Do you see how they both happen together? Ezra plans, okay, I want nine strong leaders. I want two scholarly wise men. I want to tell them what we need. Send them to where there's a group of Levites and and temple servants. Go tell them to speak truthfully and honestly and urgently. Plead with them to, to come. And then when they do come, who do we give the credit to? To God. Right? So we work hard and we trust God for the results. Right? We work hard and wisely and we trust the results ultimately to God. Human ability only finds success in God's good providence. By the way, a little footnote here of application, this should keep us dependent on God even in areas where we are naturally and supernaturally gifted. Did he pick nine natural strong leaders? Did he pick two really intelligent, wise men? Yes. Did their natural leadership gifts and their their, their wisdom, did those things guarantee a successful result by themselves? No. What guarantees the result? 
God's good hand upon them. So, so hear me on this. Even in areas where you are strong, and by the way, I know we can all at times bemoan our weaknesses, but we should, we should, we should entrust our weaknesses to God for His strength. But listen, what about the areas where you are strong? You're really, you shine in hospitality. You're just naturally, you love it. You're, you're, you shine in the area of encouragement. It's easy for you to give a word of encouragement. Perhaps you're intellectually, you shine. You're able to think through issues critically and carefully and evaluate them and to give solid, sound answers. Whatever it may be, whatever your area of gifting or skill is, maybe it's physical service. It's just you enjoy physical acts of service and, and gift giving and, and things like that. What, even in the area where you're strong, and praise God for areas where you are strong in this room. So many gifts are represented in this room. It's amazing. But listen, even where you are strong, you need God's good hand of providence to make what you're doing effective for the kingdom. You hear that? Even where you're strong, you need God's good hand of providence to make your strengths effective. So even when we're strong, we need to be humble and dependent on God. By the good hand of our God, they brought us a man of discretion. Now look at verse 20. Also, besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. All right, that's the end of point number one. You know what? I have one more part. I don't have time for this, but one more little sub point on point. We'll move more quickly for points two and three. Fret not. Uh, so uh, one last thing here. Th this group of over 240 plus men uh, and their families, they had to make a big decision in a short amount of time. I mean, if you give them the maximum, they had at maximum, I'm thinking it's probably less than this. They had at most about 11, 10, 11 days, and they probably had only about five or six days in reality to make a life-changing, permanent, irreversible decision for their family and for their lives. Now think about that. They had to give up all the security they had, make this journey, and start from scratch. And this was all because of the Lord's calling on their life. The Lord needed Levites to come. The Lord, the Lord doesn't need anything. The Lord was commanding Levites to come. And they made a massive life change in obedience to the Lord. This may not apply to many, but let me ask you, especially if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, coming to know Christ is going to require a massive change of your life. In, in one sense, nothing will be the same. If you turn from sin and trust in Christ, it's a whole new life in front of you. And there's a lot that you have to give up. And that can be frightening, scary. I don't know what life would be. I can't picture my life without these, perhaps, sins in them. But I want you to know, those who give up all to follow Christ, they find all in Christ. Those who've given up houses and families will receive a hundred times in this life in the church, but then also in the age to come, eternal life. There is no losing when we lose all for Christ, because every loss turns into gain in Jesus. Please don't be afraid of the Christian life. Fling away all that's holding you back to have Jesus, and you will find all that you need in Him. Point number two, Ezra fasts and prays to God and finds protection. This is verses 21 to 23. I love this small part of the text. It's really worth lingering on for a moment. Look at verse 21. They have not started traveling yet. Verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. 
Skip to verse 23. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and He listened for our entreaty. One of the first times I was really reading this more carefully in recent weeks, I don't remember, maybe it was just a few days ago, I don't remember when it was I was reading this, but I remember underlining here uh, the phrase, our children, in verse 21. For ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Our children. Scott just mentioned with parenting, and obviously with us being having young children, it's, it's hard not to see these children references in the text with greater clarity as a parent, but just underlining that phrase, our children. Think about the impact this would have had on you as a child. I know I referenced something like this last week with Joel Beakey, but I, it's a different kind of reference here. But think about this. Imagine you're a five-year-old girl, you're an eight-year-old boy, and your parents are following Ezra, and they're making this return journey. They're risking, in one sense, everything for this call of God on their lives. So what do they see? Ezra declares not just to pray, what does he declare? To fast and pray. And so you see your parents going without food for at least, what, one day, two days, three days? I don't know how long this fast was. It had to be a short fast. But for a day or two, a few days, your parents go without food. And the whole time, just over and over and over, what are they doing? Perhaps there are tears, but they are imploring God for a safe journey. They're asking God to work His kingdom. They're asking God to use them back in Jerusalem, to protect them on the way. They're pleading with God and not eating food. As a young child, do you think that's going to stick in your long-term memory? My parents meant it when they sought God. Why do they fast and pray? Well, as you know, fasting inherently is a humbling thing. Why? Because when you fast, you feel weak. You go 24 hours without any food, just drink, and you feel physical weakness, which leads to automatic humility, right? I mean, just, you don't feel, I, I'm, I'm stronger, I'm better. You feel, I'm what? I'm dependent. I'm needy. If I don't get food soon, I'm going to just fall apart here. Fasting humbles us. It shows us how limited we are, how frail we are. And they were saying, listen, fasting is not meritorious. It doesn't merit from God blessings. It doesn't earn anything from God. It, it, ma- fasting does not, is not magical. But what does fasting do? Fasting adds intensity to our prayer lives. It adds intensity to our prayer lives. They were saying, we mean this so much that we are going to fast. We're going to go without food to show the urgency and intensity. And guess what? When you are that hungry, it has an incredible way of focusing the mind on what you are praying about. I mean, isn't that one of the things that makes prayer hard is focus? Am I alone in this battle? You start praying and what, 45 seconds into a prayer, you're thinking about tomorrow morning, you're thinking about some meeting you have, you're thinking about what you forgot to email that person, right? Am I, you know, and I heard someone, this is a good tip one time, a pa- another pastor told me uh, to, to get away from the, 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 the cloud of, of almost like gnats that surround you when you go to pray. It's like all these stray thoughts come into your mind that say, go do something else. Uh, a pastor said, listen, get a little, get a little three by five card or a sticky note and just if something pops in your mind while you're praying, just jot it down on the sticky note and then forget it. Don't let it get you up off the floor. Just write it down and then go back to prayer. Don't, don't, be, don't be distracted by that. But when they're hungry, their minds were especially focused on these prayers, and they pray for God's help. Look at verse 22. This is the reason in particular that they're not going to ask for help on the way from King Artaxerxes. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king... The hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him, and the power of His wrath against all who forsake Him. Now, do you see that? Ezra saw this as 
if I ask for help from the pagan king, it looks like my God can't take care of the job of protection, so I'm not going to ask for a free entourage, a military escort, which he could have had for free. I'm going to say no, because God will be our military escort. And he said that so boldly in front of the king, you almost wonder if afterwards did Ezra regret saying that to the king. <laughs> he said that to the king, and then he thought, okay, I better be true to my word. I said God is faithful, to, he's going to be faithful to us, and so we're going to plead for the Lord for protection, and we're not going to depend on human strength. We're going to depend directly on God. Now, I don't have time for all this, but just as a quick footnote, Nehemiah does exactly the opposite in Nehemiah 2.9. It's amazing. Nehemiah goes to the same king, and he needs help going back to Jerusalem. And King Artaxerxes says, I'll give you an entourage. He says, I'll take it. That's, that's, the, that's the blessing of God on me. You mean God is going to enable you to give me soldiers? That's the blessing of God. And Ezra, Nehemiah 2.9, I came to the province beyond the river with the king's letter. And the king who had sent me with officers, he sent an army and horsemen with me. I mean, Nehemiah is glorying in the fact that he got these troops from Artaxerxes. And Ezra says, I wouldn't dare take a troop uh, from Artaxerxes. These are both godly men. Do you see the point of application here? On non-clear moral issues, on gray matters, can genuine godly people reading the same Bible come to different conclusions and still be godly people? Yes. I'm not talking about unclear moral issues. It's not, you know, someone says adultery is bad, someone says it's good, well, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm not talking about doctrinal compromise here. I'm not talking about that. Ezra and Nehemiah are like bosom buddies. These are really amazing godly men. They complement each other. Their personalities are not identical, and the way they handle an entourage is opposite. But I don't think either one sinned. I think this is, this is like a, you know, meat sacrifice to idols kind of issue in the New Testament. One person thinks the meat is defiled in his own conscience, and so he should refrain from eating it to the glory of God. Another person has no problem at all eating this meat in the market, which may have been sacrificed to an idol, and he does it to the glory of God. Who has sinned? No one. Paul says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. So in some matters like this, I think that there needs to be some charity amongst Christians on secondary issues that are not doctrinal or moral directly, where people come to different conclusions, and that's okay. And we need to be able to respect that uh, amongst each other. All right, let's move to point number three. Ezra entrusts the offerings to the priests and finds them faithful. Verses 24 to 36. I'm not going to read all of this. I'll just give you a few portions here. Look at verse uh, 25. Ezra's going to take no chances. He's going to weigh out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels. Verse 26, I weighed out into their hands all the silver and gold. So I have written down here, one study Bible says, this is 25 tons of silver and just over three and a half tons of gold. This is an amazing amount of wealth, which God blessed them with through Artaxerxes to take back for the rebuilding of the temple. And again, do we see two things? Ezra is being responsible and hardworking. Here's what he does. He, this is very smart, especially back in the 400s BC. That's what he does. All the gold and silver is carefully weighed out. Every ounce is weighed. So does he know exactly how much they're taking at the beginning of the journey? Why might that be important? Because when he gets to the end of the journey, he's going to weigh it all out again. And guess what he wants to find out? Ounce for ounces. He want to find the same amount of silver and the same amount of gold so no one's stealing? Because back then, coins were different shapes and sizes, different weights. If someone wanted to, if there was a Judas Iscariot in the midst, he could shave off a little bit of a gold derrick or whatever, and he could shave off a little bit from a hundred of those gold derricks. And he could save that gold, and he could melt it down and keep it as his own little gold bar. And he has just as many derricks when he got there, as when he gets there, as when he left. 
but did he steal the whole time? Yes. So Ezra is leaving no room for temptation to steal. He weighs out every bit and tells you how much he has of gold and silver. And then when they get there, they weigh out all of it. And guess what they find? It matches perfectly by God's hand. Nobody stole anything, even amongst the people. And yet, look what he says here. Got to find the right verse. Look at verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava, so now they're finally leaving for their trip, on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained, we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah. And with them was Eliezer, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Jozabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. Let me read the rest of the text here. Verse 35. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Do you see here, God once again is able to do more than we ask or think, as Paul says. He delivered them safely with all that wealth all the way to Jerusalem because they relied on him. So I'm going to move into a conclusion, but I'm going to read a couple long quotes. So stick with me here, okay? And then I'll pray for us and we'll sing again. Let me remind you of the summary of the sermon. God provides for all his people's needs through the wise, humble, and careful planning of Ezra. So let us learn to work hard and wisely as we entrust ourselves to God. And about working hard, I want to read from Spurgeon and I want to read part of a poem. Remember Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever the Lord has put before you to do, work at it with all your might. And here's what Spurgeon says. Just like Ezra models in this text, quote, Spurgeon says, Let us not wait for large opportunities or a different kind of work, but do just the things we find to do day by day. We have no other time in which to live. The past is gone. The future has not arrived. We never shall have any time but the present. Then do not wait until your experience has ripened into maturity before you can attempt to serve God. Endeavor now to bring forth fruit. Serve God now. Whatever you do for Christ, throw your whole soul into it. Do not give Christ a little slurred labor done as a matter of course now and then. But when you do serve Him, do it with your heart and soul and strength. Then this poem to close about when we meet Christ. By and by, when I look at his face, beautiful face, thorn-shadowed face, by and by, when I look at his face, I wish I had given him more, more, so much more, more of my love than I ever gave before. By and by, when he holds out his hands, welcoming hands, nail-riven hands, by and by, when he holds out his hands, I wish I had given him more. In the light of that heavenly place, Light from his face, beautiful face, in the light of that heavenly place, I wish I had given him more. By and by, when I look at his face, I wish I had given him more. Let's bow our heads together.
Heavenly Father, this passage reminds us of your faithfulness. And as we saw in verse 2, this descendant of David, Hattush, was there. His name is recorded. And we know, God, that your faithfulness is on display in the line of David. God, we thank you for this great grandson of Zerubbabel. God, we thank you for preserving David's line so that one day the angel Gabriel could show up to the Virgin Mary and say, the son whom you will bear will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God, you demonstrated your ultimate faithfulness, fulfilling your word that a lion from the tribe of Judah would come, not first to conquer, but first as a lamb who was slain, who would be conquered for us, who would take our sin and your judgment against us and bury it in the ground, drinking the cup of wrath dry, and then rise triumphant to newness of life so that all of us who turn from sin and trust in you could have our sins forgiven and a doorway open to know you now and for all of eternity. God, we thank you that our names are written in the book of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.